Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, lead pastor Josh Karstensen continues a series in Hebrews 11 called Something Better. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all held on to a promise they didn't see fulfilled in their lifetimes. In Hebrews 11, they each get a single sentence describing their actions at the end of their lives. It shows that despite their hardships, they stayed faithful. What do you want a single sentence to say about yourself at the end of your life? Also, in August, we're focusing on the spiritual discipline of simplicity. What is one way you can focus less on wealth and material goods and more on God? For example, before making any purchase this week, pause and thank God for what you already have. Now, here's today's message. So I was, I was talking to my parents this week. Uh, my parents were at Cannon Beach Christian Conference Center. I've never been up there for family camp, but they're up there and, and my mom says to me later in the week, she goes, oh, we have, uh, the speaker, the night speaker, is one of the pastors that you spent time with on your sabbatical. And uh, he's from Santa Cruz. And, and I'm like, man, and he's preaching through Hebrews 11, uh, this series. And he just published a book on Hebrews 11. And my mom gave this to me yesterday. And I thought, that's great. It would have been really great if I had this like a month and a half ago or three months ago. But if you are enjoying our sermon series through Hebrews 11... It's called Faith Forward. It came out this year. It's a super simple read. Um, last night, before, you know, I got this last night. I was like reading over the sections I'm going to be preaching on today, seeing if there's any nuggets in here. There's a few. Um, but I would just encourage you, find a copy of that. It's called Faith Forward by Renee Shepler. I normally don't push books, but there you go. Uh, Hebrews 11, if you're liking that, um, let's do that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take a little bit of a 90-degree turn here a little bit, and we're just going to have a, a minute just to be silent before the Lord. Um, we all come from kind of chaotic weeks and we talk about camp and fun and, and then we open up 4,000 year old words and we want God to speak and move through this. So let's just center ourselves here for a minute. Lord, it's a, it's a beautiful gift, um, that you give us this rhythm of weekly gathering before you. And yeah, it's a, it's a fun family reunion for some of us, and it's, it's a new awkward experience for others, and it's a scary thing for some. God, but be way past just who's in this room. God, we're here because you're here. God, and, and you see every part of our life. Uh, we don't come masked in front of you. God, you see through everything, and so we carry all kinds of different things from life this week, and we put ourselves in front of you, and, and we want to meet with you here. God, if you don't show up, this is a silly exercise. Um, God, if we don't have a profound encounter with you, God, if, if our lives aren't shaped and moved by your spirit, then this is worthless. And so, yes, it is great to talk about how um, we can swing on 60-foot swings, and I'd probably do a 100-footer. Um, but regardless of that, God, we, we know that you're the giver of life. And so, Jesus, we just want more of you. Um, show up today in a profound way. And we love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So one of the things that I love doing as a pastor, and this is going to sound morbid, but it's not. Um, I love doing funerals. Uh, funerals are profound. 
Solomon says it. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning than a house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. And basically saying, hey, when you go to a funeral, it's, a, it's kind of a stark reminder that life does end for all of us. And when you go to a funeral, um, you get to see kind of on display someone's life. And what I love about funerals, for the most part, is, is that I get to meet with people. I get to meet with families. I get to meet with spouses. I get to meet with kids before the funeral. And I get to say, hey, tell me about this person's life. Like, what, what do you want me to say? You know, and, and some of the times I know the people, oftentimes I don't know them super well. So I'm just trying to ask, like, hey, what is important to this person? And we're going to spend an hour to two to three hours sometimes in front of the people that they love the most. And we're going to try to tell their story somehow in some way um, that they will be remembered, that God will be glorified. And so you get to ask him what was important to this person. And you get a wide range of answers from people, right? Sometimes like every single person, every person, I've, I've, yet had, I've yet to have one person who didn't say, man, they love their family. So like everyone apparently loves their family, which I don't believe, but um, everyone kind of loves their family. And then you get some people who will say things like, oh man, uh, my mom was so into like Diet Coke and Sudoku puzzles. Like that was really, really important to her. I don't know how she would have lived without that. And I'm seeing some nods here. Um, and, you, and sometimes like you get these really trivial things that are like really kind of paramount to someone's life and you're sitting in a funeral and, and you just mourn for people who aren't living for much more than whatever hobby or whatever kind of next vacation But then you get to some funerals, and these are the ones that I truly, genuinely love, where you hear story after story after story of of incredible lives lived, right? You you hear stories where, you know, a kid will come up and they'll say, man, my my dad, he loved people the way Jesus loved people. And and you'll hear stories of someone will say, like, man, my mom was a teacher and and she bought a car for one of her um, her students who couldn't get to school. And and you'll hear my grandpa, man, my grandpa, he was a farmer and he he would would, um, hire ex-cons who couldn't get jobs anywhere else. And and he would give them housing on the farm and he would love them like no one else loved them. And then like five or six people later, someone would come up on the stage who no one knows and they'd say, man, I am that person who got out of jail that this person gave me a shot. And they told me about Jesus, and they were the first person who cared about me to give me a job. But not only did they give me a job, but they told me about Jesus, and my life has been changed forevermore. Right? And you hear stories, and these are stories that I've literally heard. I've heard all of these. Right? You hear stories where people say, man, our entire family is changed because my grandma got saved at this point in life, way later in life. And from there, it was like dominoes. The rest of us, we just couldn't, like, we were all saved at that point. Once grandma went, everyone started going at that point. And you get these moments, some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been to these funerals. You get to these moments where, man, someone's life just tells this incredible, beautiful story. And as we're going to look today at um, kind of some funeral-esque type moments, I want us to think about our lives. I want us to think about the end of our lives. And man, some of us are closer than others. I I think I'm probably about halfway. Like most men in my family live to early 70s. Sorry, Megan. Um, (laughs) And so you get to that point and you're like, okay, what do I want to be saying at the end of my life? What do I want to be doing at the end of my life? What do I want to be saying about the Lord at the end of my life? And how do I get to the spot that no matter what happens in my life, I can still say something about my faith when it comes to the end of my life? How do I do that? How can I do that well?
I mean, this last week I was talking to John. John was up here playing the bass, and he, 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 he's uh, one of our music interns. He just finished out this last year, and uh, he's graduating. He's going to go join the Coast Guard. But he had a cool opportunity to go on a trip out to Europe um, with a couple other guys. I think Devin was on that trip uh, back in the, in the back there. And uh, they got a cruise over uh, Europe, and uh, one of the stops that they made was in Germany. They were there, and they went to Dachau. And Dachau is the uh, kind of, I think it's the first concentration camp uh, during Nazi Germany. And, and he was telling me about some of the, just the profound moments that he had while um, visiting this place. And um, you can correct me later if what I'm about to say is wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure this is all pretty accurate as far as your feelings and what you experienced there. He was telling me uh, what it was like to kind of just read some of the different stories of prisoners that were there. Uh, particularly, he said what was profound to him was some of the stories of some of the clergy that were there. Um, Dachau was uh, one of the, the places, or it was the camp where uh, clergy were sent. So they were kind of gathered from all the different regions, and they were sent to this one place. And it was kind of a lot of political prisoners. There was about 160,000 different prisoners in this camp, and about 2,700 um, clergy were in this particular camp. And, and they had their own barracks in the camp. Um, but conditions were virtually the same. And uh, you can imagine what life was like in there. And kind of on their own, they, I read about this this last week, they would kind of set up their own church services. Uh, they set up a little chapel with kind of makeshift stuff from, from the camp that was there. And um, there was different parts where you could read about some of the lives of these clergy. And, and what was interesting is right outside of the camp, um, there's a church And when John was at this church, he saw just these long lists of these clergy names. And right next to them was a simple sentence that said, hey, this is what this person did towards the end of their life right before they died in the camps. And what was interesting about these camps in particular, Dachau is kind of famous for its brutal treatment of of, um, prisoners. And they do a lot of medical experimentations on people. And they would introduce them to all kinds of diseases, um, diseases like malaria and typhoid. And, and while the clergy were separated, they were famous for going into places where people um, were sick and they were caring for the sick and they were getting sick themselves and they were dying. And so John said that he would read these lists of people in this church in this memorial next door saying, man, this clergy, this pastor, this person, um, while they could have chosen to be separated, would go in and would care for those who were hurting in the camp. Man, I I think about what it would be like to sit down and talk with those prisoners and say, um, man, what was it like to kind of make that decision to go into this place to intentionally know, like, you're probably not getting out unscathed but you still chose to love on these people, well, I wonder what they would say about God towards the end of their life. And I wonder what it would be like to be in that spot and to, I mean, you have to believe at some point they're going, man, Lord, this doesn't seem very good. Where are you in the middle of this? Yet they were still choosing certain activities to put themselves at risk to love people. We're going to open up Hebrews 11 today, and we're going to see kind of a plaque-like setting, kind of like uh, this memorial next to Dachau, where we're going to see three different people's names, and we're going to get one little sentence about each person. And it's interesting because it's very similar. It's like, this is the sentence at the very end of their life. Uh, For two of them, like at the actual deathbed of their life, and we're going to see what their life was all about today. And what's interesting is as we're going to look at these three different men, we're going to see like two of them they kind of struggled through life. Like life was a, was a slog in a lot of ways. Um, they struggled with faith in some ways. Struggled with incredible amounts of hardship. Um, one of them, like 
life was going pretty good. Uh, he had a lot of favor. Uh, he was following the Lord pretty consistently, yet things still kept falling apart. Yet he continued to hold on to this redemptive thread of God doing something in his life. And so we're going to look at what I'm going to call this plaque today of these three men. And we're going to see what they said at the end of their life while going through some incredible hardship. So if you got a Bible, let's go Hebrews 11, starting in verse 20. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. And we're going to look at the faith of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Joseph. Hebrews 11, verse 20, says this, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Grab a seat. It's interesting, we've been kind of going through this book, and over the last three weeks, we've primarily been looking at one man, Abraham. And Abraham is kind of the father, the the primary patriarch of the Old Testament. And then you get three more, but we get one sentence for each of them. So Abraham gets like this long list of here's who Abraham is, and here's his life, and here's how he was faithful. But for these men, you just get like this super quick one sentence at the funeral. This is what they are saying. And so as we're going to look at these lives today... We're going to look at kind of if they had a quote that they could give for their life during their own funeral, what would that quote be and why would that be true? We're going to start with Isaac. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, Isaac's a tricky character. Um, Some of you know the story of Isaac well. I'm assuming there's a lot of people in here who also don't know the story very well. Um, had a hard life in a lot of ways, had an incredible hard life. And and we're going to kind of walk through that life and why it was hard. But if he were to have a quote at his funeral, if he were to have something written from him on his gravesite, I think it would say something like this. I think it would say, God's plans are better than my plans. You think about Isaac's life and you think about what it would have been like to grow up uh, the way he did. Well, first of all, like his, his life was prophesied 25 years before he was born. And so there's a lot of anticipation for his life, right? You remember when he was born, his parents were super old, right? His dad was almost 100. His mom was 90. Um, and imagine like, first of all, growing up with parents that old, like that's hard. Like there's some barriers there that's got to be challenging. Like all your friends you're going to school with, are like, dude, is that like your great, great, great grandpa taking the class? Like, no, that's my dad. And so you have to believe there's some disconnection there. Like you carry that a little bit further and, and we don't know the details of this, but his, what would have been his half brother Ishmael when Isaac was maybe two or three, was kicked out of the house with his mom. And, and I don't know if he had any connection there. I don't know. But perhaps somewhere down the road, like there's pressure from some outside sources like, hey, it was because of you that this part of your family had to leave. And I don't know. Maybe he felt some of that weight. Maybe he felt some of that responsibility. And then like we talked about last week, there was that whole moment where dad tries to sacrifice you. Like that's just, there's some tension there for years. Right? I mean, I, like that's, we can laugh about that, but that's not funny. Like, dad, remember when you were going to kill me? Like, what if God asks you to do that again? I don't know. Like, I think I'm going to sleep over in this tent. You can be over there. Like, he had to live with that for a while. 
And the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree in a lot of ways. You think about Isaac's life, and he gets married a little bit later. He's 40 when he's married. And for 20 years, his wife can't have kids. And again, in that day and age, like, that's detrimental, right? There's no future. There's no security. You've got nothing to pass down your family inheritance and line with. And for 20 years, they're begging the Lord, God, we, we want a kid. And for 20 years, the answer is no, 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 no. And then what's interesting is if you look at his life, when he finally, when Rachel finally is able to get uh, pregnant, sorry, um, when his wife's able to get pregnant, there's this really interesting promise that God gives to them, which had to be a bit of a devastating promise. So if you've got a Bible, go Genesis 25. Listen to what God says um, about Rebecca, or he says to Rebecca when she's pregnant. Starting in verse 23 of Genesis 25, it says, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. That's painful. Right? I mean, I I can't imagine what it would be like to, to not only want kids for 20 years and not be able to have them, but then when you finally do get pregnant, you're pregnant with twins, and then God tells your wife, oh, by the way, these two offspring are going to be at war with one another, and the older will serve the younger. Right? And that was particularly hurtful to dad because uh, Isaac had a problem. He liked his oldest son better. Right? The, the text talks about like they had a lot more in, con- or in common with one another. The oldest son, Esau, was like this hunter, outdoorsy type of guy. And Jacob was kind of your indoor reader, liked hanging out with mom type of guy. And so there's a lot of tension in there. And imagine, here's Isaac, and he's going, man, Lord, why is there so much tension in my family? Why would the older serve the younger? Why are they going to be divided? History will tell us that Jesus eventually comes from the line of Jacob, and uh, Josephus tells us that Herod actually comes from the line of Esau, which is interesting, just perpetual generations of kind of uh, being at enmity with one another. But, uh, but Isaac continues to have a lot of tension in this home. So some of you know what this is like, like living in homes with tension, or a lot of us, like broken homes. I mean, here, we've got a lot of favoritism going on. We've got manipulation going on. And a lot of us know what that's like to grow up in a home like that. You can sympathize with Isaac. You can sympathize with their kids and his wife. The story continues on, and, and um, Isaac like, kind of makes the same mistake as his dad, right? You remember when uh, Abraham, I think Pastor Ron talked about this, when he went down to Egypt, he's like, hey, uh, people are going to want my wife, so I'm going to just say that she's my sister. Isaac does the same thing, right? Come on, brutal. What are you doing here, buddy? Um, Not a good idea. But as he's continuing, like God is continuing to be faithful to him. He's kind to him. He's gracious to him. God keeps promising him, hey, like I made a promise to your dad that through your line, I'm going to do something great. And so he kind of is holding on to this promise. Meanwhile, life just continues to be hard. We get to this moment a little bit towards the end of his life, not towards the very end, but he's getting old. He can't see anymore. And he has this moment where he's like, you know what? God has made a promise to me, but I'm going to try to manipulate that promise and I'm going to try to bless my older son and not the younger son. And you, some of you know this story if you grew up in church, if you're familiar with this, this moment where he's on kind of his, he can't see, he's senile, and he brings his oldest son to him, Esau, and he says, hey, uh, I want to bless you, and, and God's promised, like my dad, that we're going to be blessed to our family, so I'm going to try to bless you so it's going to happen to you, because I like you, you're my favorite, so why don't you go kill me something, make some stew, and you bring it back, and I'm going to bless you, 
right? And if you know the story, mom overhears this, and she's got her favorite son, so she kind of dresses him all up. She gets him all hairy and makes him the stew and sends him into dad. And dad's a little bit confused. He's like, oh, you feel and smell like your older brother, but you sound like the indoor kid. But here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. And so he blesses him, and kind of immediately after, like Esau runs, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But Think about what he was doing. Think about what Isaac was doing in this moment. And listen how cruel this blessing was. It's pretty cruel in a lot of ways. Genesis 27. Again, I think this is him manipulating what he thinks God's blessing might look like. Starting in verse 26, we read this. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. So he's like, hey, I want you to thrive. I want you to have all these promises that God has promised my father. In 29, he says, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. And here's where it gets cruel. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. That seems a little manipulative. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Right? This is him kind of taking in his own hands, like, hey, I've heard that my younger son's going to be blessed, but I want it to go to my older son, but I still kind of believe God's with me. And so I'm going to take a little of what God wants me to do, and I'm going to take a little bit of what I want to do, and I'm going to try to make it work somehow. It turns out to be disastrous. The families are warring with one another, and we're going to see this in a minute here. But Jacob and Esau, uh, ultimately Esau finds out, and he wants to kill his brother, so his brother has to flee, and for years they're at war with one another. Eventually they make up, and, and dad is reconciled towards the end of his life. But I want you to think through, what's he saying towards the end of his life? What's Isaac saying towards the end of his life? He's got to be saying, God's plans are better than my plans. When you think about the things that God asks us to do, and you think about what God was trying to do through this nation and through this life of Isaac and how we can manipulate things to get what we want, and I think sometimes we live our lives like this as well. But I think sometimes it's easy to know the general idea of what God wants us to do, but in the particulars, I think it's sometimes easy for us to say, yeah, God, I, I know you want me to serve, or you know, I know you want me to be invested in this or that, but I'm just going to kind of do my own thing, because I know you're still with me. And this is the life of Isaac. He's like, God, I, I've got a promise from, from my dad, and, and I know you're with me, but I'm still going to kind of do my own thing. And, and as he did his own thing, it was just hardship after hardship after hardship after hardship. You think about what God's asking us to do. And he's, all, he's asking each of us to do something different with our life. He's asking each of us to do something different with our week, right? He's asking some of us, each of us to do something different with our day. Like, what is God asking with your life? And are you trying to manipulate it to get what you want? I think we see this very clearly in Isaac. And the story continues with more manipulation from Jacob. Let's go verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. If we were to read a plaque from the very end of of Jacob's life, I think we would read something like this. God is good despite my rebellion. You think about what it would be like to be the younger brother that your dad didn't like. 
The reality is some of you know this. I've talked to many of you who didn't have a great relationship with your dad. You know, some of you in kind of like the 50s, 60s, 70s generation, I've talked to you and you're just like, that's just how it was. None of our dads liked us. (laughs) Jacob grows up being the favorite of his mom. He leaves um, because his brother wants to kill him. You think about what it would have been like. He falls in love with this girl. and He's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry you. And, and her dad's like, all right, you just work for me for seven years and she's all yours. And you get this really super awkward moment where a day after the wedding you wake up, you're like, that's her sister, um, which is brutal. You want to talk about family dynamics and hardship there? Like that's, that's a lot of pain and struggle because I, when, I, when I grew up in Sunday school, like this is the story I think I was told. It's like, hey, that, you know, he worked for seven years and then he got Leah, unfortunately, but then worked for another seven years. But if you read the story carefully, he works for seven years. He gets married to Leah and they force him to stay married to her for seven days. And then he gets married to Rachel after seven days and still has to work another seven years. But that turmoil in that home, that's real. He's a wanderer his whole life. His whole life, he has this promise that God's going to give them a land. He's going to give them a people, but he doesn't have a home. So he's perpetually trying to figure out, where do I belong? Who are my people? Where is this place that you have promised me? Right? And some of us know what that's like to try to feel like, man, I want to belong somewhere, but I don't feel like I belong anywhere, whether it's in relationship right? Whether it's in a job or a career. I mean, how many people are constantly trying to figure out, man, God, what did you make me for? Trying to figure out where my place is. Where do I belong? Who are my people? What is my profession? And this is this life of Jacob just perpetually trying to figure out, God, where do you want me to be? He's this wanderer. But God continues to bless him in his wandering. We see this in Genesis 35, 12, And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Like, that's a bold promise from God. Kings shall come from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give you the land to your offspring after you. Right? So just continuously has these massive promises from God, but life's a struggle. Right? His favorite wife dies in childbirth. Man, that's painful. His son is sold into slavery and the other brothers tell him that his son has died. Like, man, if you've had a kid who's passed away, like that pain is incredibly real. Here's Jacob having this pain. You go towards the end of his life and we have a couple different conversations that he uh, makes very clear that his life has been full of what he calls evil and hardship. Towards the very end of his life, he's reunited with his son, Joseph, and Joseph brings him and the rest of the family back to Egypt. And we get this intimate conversation between Jacob and the Pharaoh at one point. This is in Genesis 47. Listen to what Jacob says to the Pharaoh in verse 8. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Listen to this. This is what Jacob says. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the days and years of my life. It's like, dude, my life has been hard. And the reality is I have done a lot of that to myself. I have fought against the Lord. You think about Jacob. God's trying to bless him. And he's like forcing God to do it. There's this moment where he's wrestling with God or with an angel and 
He's like, you will bless me. And God's like, I want to bless you. Chill out. I'm going to do it. And he's just forcing his hand. He continues on in this word to Pharaoh. Few and evil have been the days and years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. But what does he do? Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. It's like, I've been a wanderer. I've been trying to figure out where my home is. I've been trying to figure out who my people are, but God has still been good to me. 17 years later, at the very end of his life, he's in Egypt. He never makes it to the promised land. He never gets this place that God says, I'm going to give to your father. I'm going to give to you. Kings will come from you. 17 years later, he's still in Egypt, and he, he blesses his grandsons at this point. But he asks his son, hey, would you take my bones with you to this place that God promises us? And then we see the words that the author of Hebrews 11 gives us in terms of his blessing. It says this, it says, the God before whom, this is his blessing to his grandkids, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God whom has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow in a multitude in the midst of the earth. Right? Maybe you're here and, and maybe you've got a life like Jacob. Man, maybe, maybe your life, for whatever reason, you know, for things that you have done, for things that have been done to you, maybe you're that wanderer. Right? Maybe, like he says to Pharaoh, my life has been full of evil, full of hardship, full of pain. Right? My dad didn't love me. My mom rejected me. My brother wanted to kill me. There's been huge tension in the family. I've, had to be, I've been chased by people for years. Literally, people are keep filling up his wells, and he's having to go to new places, trying to figure out, where do I belong? No one wants me here. Right? Some of us know that pain, yet there's this thread through his whole life where he's like, but God made a promise to me. Like God is still with me. God loves me despite what may be happening to anything around me. I have a place and I'm going to hold on to that promise. I've got something better coming. Lastly, we'll get to Joseph here. Perhaps the most famous of all the stories. Starting in verse 22 from Hebrews 11, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Man, I think if we were to read a plaque towards the end of his life, maybe at his funeral, he'd have a quote that would say something like this. Hold on, God is taking us home. Um, Joseph was Jacob's son. Uh, he was sold into slavery when he was young. He was an impetuous, excited young teenager who loved telling his older brothers how they were all going to worship him. And older brothers didn't like that, so they sold him into slavery. I mean, just imagine what that life is like as Joseph, right? You have this vision that God's with you, then all of a sudden you're in some chain gang, you know, being hauled off to a foreign land. And you're like, God, I thought you were going to do something great here. Where are you? But that's not how Joseph sees his life. We're going to see this perpetual thread through Joseph's life, right? You, you get Joseph's life where he's being faithful, he's being obedient, and it's just hardship after hardship because what happens next is he gets to Egypt and he's put into this high position of prominence, right? This position where he has power, where he's helping save a nation from famine, 
right? But uh, his boss's wife accuses him of assault, basically, and he gets thrown into prison. And for years, he's in prison. And he's got this moment where he's like, man, Lord, I, I thought you were doing something great. I'm in prison. But he has this attitude of redemption through the whole thing. He has this attitude that life's going to throw me hardship. And I, I have one of two choices. I can either sit here and say, man, my life's terrible. Why isn't it going this way? Or he can look at it and say, you know what? God, you're doing something different than I expected. God, you're moving and working in unique ways. And that's the story of Joseph. Twice he's forgotten about in prison. Two times. Eventually he's freed and, and he's able to not only just restore this incredible region of food for the entire nation around him, but he's restored back to his family. And he's restored in this profound, powerful way. And I don't have time to get into it all. But in this, he has this perpetual theme of looking at hardship in his life and not being just perpetually bummed out on the hardship, but this theme of saying, God, you are moving and working through it all. Because guess what? If I wasn't here, we wouldn't have been able to do famine relief. If I wasn't here, my family wouldn't have survived. So I can take the hardship and I know that you will do good through it. I think some of us, we can look at our lives and we can look at our circumstances and we can uh, have one posture that says, man, I'm just a victim and my life's awful. You know, maybe my job didn't work out the way it was that I thought it would, or, or uh, maybe my friends aren't the way that I longed for. You know, it's easy to look around and, and think, man, my life's not as good as everyone else's, right? Especially nowadays on social media. How easy is it to be like, oh man, that vacation looks so much better than mine. Right? Those kids look so much more well-behaved. They're smiling. I can never get my kids to smile. Right? Like whatever the thing may be, it's so easy these days to look at everyone else's life and to think, man, I'm not quite like that. But what does Joseph do? He says, God, what man meant for evil, you meant for good. And even when people were intentionally cruel to me, I'm going to take that and I'm going to do something good with that. Joseph does not focus on the hardship. He sees God's redemption through it. At the very end of his life, he still never makes it to the promise that he held on to from the Lord. And that was a promise that God was giving them a land, right? And so there's this perpetual theme from all three of these patriarchs. God's giving them a land. None of them ever got it. So at the end of his life, the very end of his life, we have this moment where um, he, he asks the people to send his bones with them when God eventually does give them this land. We see this starting in verse 22, at the very end of Genesis, I think it's chapter 50. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir and the sons of Manasseh were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And he will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. Listen to this faith. God will surely visit you, and he shall carry, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You know how long it took for them to get his bones there back to this land that God promised? Over 400. You got to go to Exodus chapter 13 when Moses has brought his people out of slavery. Listen to this in Exodus 13, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. 
although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God let the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Verse 19, 400 years after Joseph said, God's going to do what he promised. Verse 19 says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Man, all three of these men held on to promises that they did not see. And for some reason, the author of Hebrews 2,000 years later had to pull back to these stories and say to a people who were experiencing this same longing, hold on, people have been holding on for a long time waiting for something better. Because think about who the author of Hebrews is writing to. And we've talked about this perpetually throughout this series. He's writing to a group of people 30 years removed from the resurrection of Jesus. Right, so you got a bunch of people, they're all excited. Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to give my life to him, and he's going to come back. And after year two and after year three, they're saying, I think he's going to come back. He said he was going to come back. And after year 10, they're going, Jesus said he's going to come back. And after year 20 and after year 30, now they're being persecuted by the Romans, and now their property is being taken. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, guys, it's brutal out there. I get it. But it's been brutal for a long time. Hold on. God is faithful to his promises. He told this guy, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And it didn't happen to him. And it didn't happen to his son. And it didn't happen to his grandson. And it didn't happen to his great-grandson. But his great-grandson held on to a promise. And 400 some odd years later, Moses brought those bones to a land that he finally gave his people. God will hold on to his promises. Will you hold on to him? Verse 35 of chapter 10 of Hebrews gives us the reason why the author wrote. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We're going to just take a few minutes here. We're going to pray. I'm going to talk a little bit more. Band, would you come on up? But would you just sit here? Let's just sit in silence. Let's close our eyes. God, there are seasons, like the author of Hebrews tells us, where we need endurance. And the reality is, I know that this is one of those seasons. I talk to a lot of people. I feel it myself. God, we have come through a season of whether it's all the COVID world or all the political tension or all the global war, God, where we're holding on to your promises that you are doing something good. And it can be easy to be discouraged. It can be easy to be isolated. God, we've got all the fears. We've got the doubts. God, but let us hold on to what you've promised. God, we all come from different places. We have different stories, just like each of the men that we looked at today. Some of these stories were brutal. They're hard. They come from hard backgrounds. They've made poor choices. Bad things have happened to them. Bad things have happened to their children. Yet there's this thread that they held on to a promise, God, that you were taking them somewhere better. God, and we hold on to that promise today. You are taking us somewhere better. 
God, that somewhere better is this land that you promised to Abraham. This something better is this land that you promised to us where we will be fully known. God, where sin and death will not be a thing. And the way that we get there is through that cross, Jesus. And what that cross reminds us is that it's not my life that's the ticket to get there. It was your life. And so, God, we hold on to that today. We hold on to that as we look forward to a future, a better future. And, God, give us endurance. We need it. We all need endurance. God, I know we're running a long race. A lot of us trying to figure out how to love well, how to lead well, how to obey well. God, give us the endurance that we need to stay next to you and to hold on to that hope of a future with you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.